I'm excited to be here with you this morning. I'm excited about what's going on behind me and above me and our children's and in our upstreet and in our teen ministries. Um, they're learning some incredible things today. We've got lots of volunteers who uh, love kids and love to teach. Also, some people who love kids and uh, aren't necessarily teaching, but are excited about providing hugs and smiles and safety and uh, just kind of being a real witness to them of what a life with God and in community can be. So our little ones are learning that Jesus loves them and that that's always going to be the case. And uh, we've got kids learning about what it means to be teamwork. And then our teens upstairs are talking about the person and the prophet of Amos. You guys should check that cat out sometime. He was not quite as weird as Ezekiel and Daniel and all those. He was just a fig farmer. But he, uh, he had some important words for the church that day and for our kids this day, that God is not interested in our religiosity, but rather is interested in justice that flows through us because God has shown it to us. And so hopefully, through their games and Pop-Tarts and their time, they're going to be chewing on what it means for them to be God's hands and feet to Swain Middle and Cherokee and Swain High and other places. And so if we can today, um, I'd like us to just begin our time together thinking about them. And so join me in prayer. Father, your littles are such a blessing to us. For those who are grandparents or parents in this room know that. On a regular basis, for those of us without children of our own, we are very thankful for the ability to share in what it is for a community to impact and to love and to raise up children in the way of love. God, I pray, we pray this morning that those littles from the smallest, uh, from Ronan and Addie and the littles all the way up to, to Cannon and Maisie and Julie and Justin and Gavin and all the others that are up there, Patrick, <laughs> that they'll uh, feel your love, they'll sense your love, that they'll grow in your love. And we want to do the same thing. We want to grow into what it means to be loved. And we thank you for that. In the sweet, strong, powerful name of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, we say so be it. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our journey of walking through the story of God uh, and humanity, uh, the Bible, with uh, Brian McLaren's book, We Made the Rope by Walking. Let me encourage you. Um, this may be a good thing for you to pick up, even if you haven't been reading along on your own private way uh, and devotionally this year. Maybe next year to just kind of keep those things fresh. Pick up a copy. We can help you with that. Um, the chapters are really short. There's just one per week, 52 weeks. But we're only talking about five pages, six pages of reading. But uh, it's getting us through the scriptures in a way that stresses the importance of what it means to grow in the path of Jesus. Not only as individuals, but also as communities. And today we find ourselves in a little bit of a shift of the story. 
We've already uh, experienced uh, what it means when we talk about creation, that God brings us into this beautiful and evolving world of wonders. We looked at that in Genesis 1 and 2 and all of what that meant. And then we understand also that not only did God make it, it was good, 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 very good. But that, that wasn't enough for us. And so into this story, we enter from creation into crisis. We step out of the dance of God's beauty and marvel, and we enter into rivalry with God and with our fellow creatures. And in doing so, we throw this planet into disarray. Thankfully, we saw that God is not content with leaving God's creation uh, floundering or unto its own devices, but instead ushers us into a stage of scripture, of story that we call calling. We see this very notably in the person of Abraham and Sarah. We see this, that God calls people to join God in a global conspiracy of goodness and blessing, to heal and to restore all that humanity uh, and evil destroys. So we're a part of that calling. And that calling moves forward. Fortunately there's this peace. That the Israelites. The Hebrew peoples. Those who were the descendants of Abraham. Who were called by God to be God's showcase nation. What I mean by that. Is that God says. I want to show the world. What it means. When a group of people decide to not only call me. Uh, Call themselves by my name, but to live according to my statutes, my decrees, my obedience, to restore what it is, to see what it is to live a life of goodness and of holiness. And uh, that has happened, but uh, through that, the Israelite people come into a time, and we talked a little bit about this the last few weeks, they come into a time of captivity. We trace the story of uh, the patriarchs of Israel. We look at what it means to be uh, a person, uh, the person of Abraham and then his son Isaac. And then we looked at Jacob and we move forward and there's a famine that hits the land. And so uh, the descendants of those cats decide that they need to uh, find food somewhere else. And so uh, through an astonishing and an amazing unfolding of events. Joseph is in the place, uh, in power, in the place of Egypt to help Israel survive. And we looked at the idea of slavery and what happens when a new Pharaoh arises on the scene who doesn't really remember the happenings of what brought the Israelites in and instead sees this prosperous people as a threat. And so we have this area of captivity. And uh, then we see uh, that God leads them out of Egypt into the wilderness and uh, is taking them from captivity to freedom. And so we're at this place, creation, crisis, calling, captivity. And now we're here at the story of what McLaren likes to term as conquest. The Israelites finally reached the land of their ancestors had inhabited four centuries earlier. But there's a problem. 
during their absence, others had moved into the land and made it their home for those many generations. And so to possess that land, their ancestral home, they're going to have to displace and dispossess the current residents through a war of invasion and conquest. Wars like these are the most bloody and difficult of all, but the Israelites are trusting that their God, God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, that God, the God Yahweh, will give them victory. Now, I'm going to quote extensively from McLaren throughout this all, and rather just say when I'm speaking his words or not. Just know if it's brilliant, it's from him. If it's so-so, hopefully it's from me. If it's horrible, it's definitely from me. But he says this here. He says, This episode in the biblical story, more than any other, forces us to deal one of with one of life's most problematic questions, and that is the question of violence. By violence, we mean an act that intends to violate the well-being of another person or people. To help some, then the question is, is God willing to harm others? Is God part of the violence in the world And is violence part of God? Or, big O, or is God the voice calling to us in our violence to move to a new place? To join God beyond violence in kindness, reconciliation, and peace. See, today, as in the ancient context of Israel, many people sincerely believe that God loves us and wants peace for us so much that God has no trouble harming or destroying them if it benefits us. We find a lot of that kind of thinking in the Bible giving God credit and praise for our victories and their defeats. And we could very easily condemn those ancient people for that exclusive way of thinking. But before doing that, we should realize how easy it is for us to do the same. You see, whenever we create a superior us that looks down on them, For thinking so exclusively, we're in trouble. Now, from time to time in this uh, message, I'm going to be somewhat political. Uh, Not really. You see my um, Craig Seaborn 2020? Anybody happen to know what that's from? What that party entails? Yeah, dear? It is. This is fictional characters from a TV show in the 90s, all right? I don't really have a dog in a fight in that kind of way. But I want to say this. I am a proud American. I am a proud follower of Jesus. And when those two 
unfortunately come alongside one another and forces a choice from me, I'm going to choose Jesus. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If we think our hope is in the Libertarian or the Republican or the Democratic parties, then our hope's in some really messed up places. <laughs> Hopefully, as followers of the Nazarene Jesus the Christ, we realize that our true hope is in being God's faithful presence to this world in all the ways that we can be. That's not to look down on anyone for being proud that they're from this country or that nation or this place or Swain County for that matter, Maroon Strong. We're from Alabama, Roll Tide Roll. There's nothing wrong with being proud of where you come from. It's just the fact that if we want to call ourselves the church, the ecclesia in the Greek, that means the called out. That wherever we come from, our allegiance first and foremost has to be to the kingdom of heaven in the person of Jesus the Christ. Now with that little aside, and that definitely wasn't McLaren, that was me. Let me just go ahead and point out some important qualifications for when we see the type of thinking that is... um, pro-Israel and the type of thinking that we've been describing in the Bible. Check this out. God's favor for the insiders and this edition of the road we make by walking or the road we find ourselves in, the insiders would be God's people, the Israelites. But God's favor toward the insiders is dependent on the insiders living good, And humble lives. Look at Deuteronomy 7 that we may in just a minute. And it describes, you're my people, I've called you. And if you walk in my ways, I'm going to bless you. And if you're not going to walk in those ways, then you're going to have cursings come upon you because you've departed from my path. Not only is that favor dependent on living good and humble lives, if the insiders become oppressors, they should not expect God's favor to rest on them or them to help, be helped by God. And God gives the freed slaves the right to conquer just enough land for themselves just one time. They're never given the license in all of Scripture to create an empire, expanding so as to enslave others as they had been enslaved. These are all important qualifications. We see that because even as they're prepared for war, they're told again and again and again that after the conquest ends, they must treat aliens and strangers, immigrants, as neighbors with honor and respect, remembering that they were once aliens and strangers and immigrants and slaves themselves. That their ultimate dream... As a nation, God says, is not for them to be warriors, but farmers, so that swords can be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks as soon as possible. But even with those qualifications in mind, even if we're giving them every benefit for the doubt when we're talking about this era of conquest, when we're talking about Joshua and Judges in the Old Testament or Jewish Bible... We cannot, as followers of Jesus, ignore 
the brutality found in many Bible passages. From Deuteronomy 7 to Leviticus 25 to 1 Samuel 15 to Psalm 137 and 149, we hear claims that God or the Lord actively commands or blesses actions that we would call crimes against humanity. It's very clear from the scriptures that the understanding by the Israelites was that God was not wanting them to only kill, but to wipe out. There are times in these passages, in these scriptures, and other times in the Old Testament where it would be fair to say that God is a genocidal commander. Going so far as not only to dash the infant's head against the rocks, but to wipe out the livestock. And how does that gel with the picture of God that we have in Jesus? Many religious scholars have assumed that because the Bible makes these claims, we must defend them as true and good. That approach, however, is morally unacceptable for growing numbers of us. And fortunately, very fortunately, don't tune me out at this. This is about to take a bend it like Beckham curve. We have another option. An option where we can be true to the person of Jesus and an option where we can value the sacred scriptures that have been entrusted to us. We can acknowledge that in the midst of the originators of this story, God as they understood God did indeed command these things. We can acknowledge that in their way of thinking, divine involvement in war was to be expected. We can allow that they were telling the truth as they best understood it when they found comfort and reassurance in a vision of God who would harm or kill them to defend, help, or avenge us. We can Try to empathize, remembering that when human beings suffer indignity, injustice, dehumanization, and violence, they naturally, naturally pray for the revenge and dream of retribution against those who harm them. Without condoning, we can at least understand why they saw God as they did, knowing that if we had walked in their sandals, you and I, we'd be no different. But we don't even need to stop there. We can then turn to other voices in the Bible, in the scriptures, in this biblical library who in different circumstances told competing stories to give a different, and I'm going to say it, a better vision and version of God. For example, there's this passage in Deuteronomy 7. Why don't we go ahead and and lift that up, okay? Where God commands Joshua to slaughter the seven Canaanite nations. I'm going to read that now. And I'm going to read from the beginning of it. I'm not sure that we have those verses up. That would be on me. But he says this. Deuteronomy 7. Joshua's in charge of the conquest that's about to happen. And this word is attributed to God. You shall devour all the peoples that the Lord your God is giving over to you. Showing them no pity. You shall not serve their gods. 
that would be a snare to you. If you say to yourself, these nations are more numerous than I, how can I dispossess them? Do not be afraid of them. Just remember what your Lord, your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord, your God brought to you. The Lord, your God will do the same to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the pestilence against them until even the survivors and the fugitives are destroyed. Have no dread of them, for the Lord your God who is present with you is a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You'll not be able to make a quick end of them, otherwise the wild animals would be too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great panic until they are destroyed. He will hand their kings over to you and you shall blot out their name from under heaven. No one will be able to stand against you until you've destroyed them. The images of their gods you shall burn with fire. Do not covet the silver or the gold that is on them and take it for yourself because you could be ensnared by it. For it is abhorrent to the Lord your God. Do not bring an important thing into your house or you'll be set apart for destruction like it. You must utterly detest And abhor it, for it is a set apart for destruction. You see here, we're looking at the type of mentality that many of us still hold true ourselves. Citizens of a country, a powerful country. Here in 2018, thousands and thousands of years after these events occurred. But look here. When God in this Deuteronomy 7 commands Joshua to slaughter these seven Canaanite nations, they should not be shown any mercy. Even their little girls early in their chapter, it says, must be seen as threats. Whatever you do, don't take one of these little girls and allow them to marry one of your little boys. Don't do it. Because you're going to invite God's wrath because you're inviting something abhorrent. Into the camp. Into your house. But when we see that. And we compare it to a story from Matthew's gospel. It offers itself as a response to an earlier passage. We're surprised. And hopefully you and I are filled with hope. You see in this passage in Matthew chapter 15. A woman comes to Jesus. She's described as a Canaanite woman. Now, that would have been a very odd thing to call her. Canaanites no longer existed as a people. They have matriculated down and generations have moved. She was a Syrophoenician woman, maybe. But to use the Canaanite would have been a very odd way of describing her. But the... The author of the Gospel of Matthew has something that he wants to say to us. It says here that we meet a woman who's identified by Matthew as a Canaanite. And this indication is significant. Canaanites no longer existed as an identifiable culture in Jesus' days. And calling her would be like calling someone a Viking or an Aztec today. Now, uh, Patrick and Chelsea... Back with our monkeys today are big Viking fans, Minnesota Viking fans. And so they would like you to call them a Viking. But 
it would be strange. They're not really Vikings as far as I can tell. I mean, they use forks. Um, they do, right? I think they do. Okay. Uh, but she asked for the one thing from Jesus. She has a sick daughter and she asked for the one thing that was denied her ancestors. And that was mercy. Mercy for her daughter who was in great need. Now see, McLaren here says up until this point, Jesus has understood his mission only in relation to his own people. Now, I might, I, I might disagree with that. I'm not so sure about that because I see clues before this. Jesus' healing of the centurion servant in chapter 8. After all, they're pretty lost and need a lot of help. Um, but he says here that, that up until this point, Jesus is only thinking about his own people. But here is this Canaanite woman. In her persistence, he senses that there's a genuine and a great faith in God and in him. He's hesitant. He responds to her, right, in such a way that would show this hesitancy. But he hears God's call to extend mercy even to her. So he says, yes, to the mother and the daughter is healed. Now, what's interesting is, again, looking at what the author is wanting to signify to his audience. None of these biblical authors just are writing straight journalism. They're recording events, sometimes sequencing them in such a way so that they're saying something profoundly theological to its readers and to its audience. So from healing this little girl, Jesus goes to an area northwest of the Sea of Galilee. He teaches and he heals a large crowd of people there who like this woman or daughter are not members of his own religion and culture. It's really clear that their identity is non-Jewish because of their response that's recorded about Jesus's kindness. It says, and they praised the God of Israel. Now, you wouldn't say that if you were an Israelite. You would just say they praised God, which is how Matthew records it so many other times. What well, was an exception yesterday... Is now the new rule. Don't kill the other, but show mercy to them. And then Jesus repeats a miracle for these outsiders that he had done previously for his fellow Jews. Have you ever wondered why in the book of Matthew, in like chapter 14 and chapter 15, I think it is, that there's two healings of the, or, or two feedings of the crowd? You ever been like, why would he include that? Why didn't he just say, hey, Jesus did this thing where he liked to feed a lot of people with fish and bread? It happened often. Well, because he's saying something theologically here. In that first miracle, when he takes the bread and the fish and he multiplies it and he feeds the enormous crowd, it says that there were some left over. It says that after everyone had eaten, they gathered up 12 baskets of leftovers. Now that number 12 is pretty significant, but 
It almost always in the Bible refers to the whole of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. But after this second miracle, just a chapter or so away, he feeds everyone. It's people who are not of his tribe. They're not Israelites. They're not of his religion, but they've come to him. He feeds them all and there's leftovers. And there's seven baskets. One for each of those seven Canaanite nations that God had commanded to be wiped out. We find it very odd when people do not evolve. If I were to take you back on the tour of the little ones that we prayed for. The smallest ones we have still in diapers, can't quite use their words, are amazed by object permanence, peekaboo. But if we moved you up to the teen room and a kid was still exhibiting all those patterns. And that's not to say that kids don't. We would say that there was a developmental issue there. Neither, neither gives that kid any more or any less worth. They're created in the image of God. And we're to treat them as full people. Full creations. Beautiful and wonderfully made. But we would say... Developmentally, there's been an issue. What I want to point out to you today is this. From ugliness comes beauty. If we haven't in our following of God. Yes, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But if we haven't in thousands of years, especially given the person of Jesus as our guide to what Abba Father looks like, if we haven't developed in our understanding of God, then we have those same developmental issues. We're at a place where we may be well-intentioned, well-hearted, have a thriving relationship with Jesus. But we haven't come to the development and the fullness and the beauty that we should. Let me put it another way. Sociologists refer to this as moving from egocentric. It's all about me. It's just me, myself, and I. No, de la so no okay, all right. It's a beautiful group. You should check it out sometime. But if we haven't gone from egocentrism, right, to where the Bible takes us to uh, ethnic-centric or national-centric world, which is where the Israelites were, where it's not just about me and my immediate family, but it's about our nation. It's about our people. It's about our Christianity. If we stop there, we're stopping where the Israelites were. Here in Joshua and Judges. But Jesus says to us, I'm moving you from this place to global centric. 
It's not about us and them anymore. It's about us. Our gaze has to shift from our own needs to not only the needs of those that we love and who we come from, but for the needs to all humans, all creatures on this planet. It's really interesting. There's one other passage, and I'll close with this, I think. There's a passage where Jesus is describing John the Baptist. It's in John, uh, the Gospel of John. But he's describing John the Baptist. And he says, of all the prophets, not one is greater than John. John is as powerful and as strong and as goodly as anyone from this line. You got to remember John the Baptist is that crazy dude out in the wilderness before Jesus. It's his cousin. He's like in Hamel, uh, camel hair coat and he's eating honey and locusts and he's standing in the middle on the river and on the banks of the river yelling at people, repent, repent. The time is here. The axe is at the root, right? He's doing all that stuff. And Jesus says he's the best. And yet... The least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. I struggled with that for a long, long time. What the heck does that mean? But here's what it means. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to erase one jot, one tittle. I didn't want to uncross one T or undot one I. It had its place. It's brought us to where we are. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. He says later in that, in that place, I've got so much I can tell you, but you're not ready for it. The point is, is that God in the person of Jesus is saying, John's as great as this level of consciousness can be. He's at the height of this consciousness of ethnocentric. But you know what? It's time for us to move into a new stage. God is wanting to do more. And even out of the ugliness of it's just about me or it's just about us and not them. Jesus and Paul both move us into a larger encompassing picture of harmony, shalom, and a new heaven and a new earth. It says we're all connected. We're all created in the image of God. And through the person of Jesus and through our testimony, not just our words, but by the way we live practically, tangibly in this world, we are advancing the kingdom of heaven to all of creation. The band's going to come up right now. But here's what I want you to think about as they're coming up. God is with you. God is with us. But God wants us to be a blessing to the world. Now, I know we're in a political season and America's great and America's exceptional and we're going to do all these things. But let me just say this. If America's as great as it can be, in the same way that Israel was a showcase nation, if you want to say, okay, that's America's job now, we can talk about that later. But here's what I want to say to you. 
we're only as great as much as we are a blessing to the rest of the world. You're only as great as much as you are a blessing to the world. Your family is only so great as much as it is a blessing to the world. Go all the way back to Abraham. I'm going to bless you so that you can bless all the nations. Stand to your feet if you will. Let's sing this song and think on those things.